Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, local politicians have endorsed a roadmap for creating several hundreds new affordable housing units in the city of Hamilton. Sounds pretty exciting. Mayor Horvath will be on the show to talk to us about that. Can Canada ever meet defense spending targets? Well, our prime minister doesn't seem to think so. Uh, we'll also talk about the implications of the Ford government funding cuts to education. And with everything going on in today's world, especially south of the border, it's good to hear from our good friend Brian J. Karam, columnist with Salon.com. He's going to join us as well. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, I want to talk about housing. It's it's a key issue. It's an important issue. And it's a crisis in many parts of, of North America these days because of uh, the things that have gone on here, availability, pricing, et cetera, et cetera. You know what it's all about now. And uh, the city of Hamilton is uh, taking some what they think are some bold steps around that, a roadmap for creating about 350 new affordable housing units every year. 350 every year. And uh, this is something that passed unanimously through council, through the uh, General Issues Committee. Uh, Sonica Councillor uh, Brad Clark uh, says it's an exciting strategy, but there's going to be a challenge or two. Not-for-profits are finding it very challenging to raise the money to do it. I don't see an angel in the provincial government or in the federal government stepping up to say, I'll look after this. Yeah, uh, good luck with that, uh, he said skeptically. Joining us to talk about the plan, though, and uh, and the uh, the plan going forward uh, to try to get some results of this, uh, pleased to welcome to the program the mayor for the city of Hamilton, Andrea Horvath. Uh, Madam Mayor, good to have you with us again. Thanks so much for the time My today. pleasure. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for the invitation. And you've been talking about this for a long time. I think everybody, every community has been talking about this. Uh, talk to us about the plan that the, that the city has struck here, this uh, this individual plan, this uh, multifaceted plan that you you talked about at General Issues Committee. Well, it's, it's called the Hamilton Sustainability and Investment Roadmap. And, uh, I mean, Brad Clark, uh, Councillor Clark, is not wrong in his comments, and neither are you. I mean, this is uh, a challenge that we've had for a very long time. Uh, and part of uh, the idea around the investment and sustainability roadmap is, A, to make sure that we're making the right investments at the right time uh, and trying to gain more partners in terms of those investments and, and really collaborate better, uh, but also to make sure that this is a sustainable plan. Uh, and uh, Dr. Jim Dunn yesterday at GIC said uh, this is um, so that, you know, we know that it's not just something that's going to fall off the side of somebody's desk, that this is a, a plan, a focus on housing uh, that, that really does mean that somebody's going to wake up every morning and and be, like, worried about all of this stuff. Now, I think we're all worried about it in many ways, but having dedicated staff, a dedicated team that looks at, at really at four pillars, Bill, four pillars, which are construction of new units, and that's, I think, the 350 that you talked about, uh, acquisitions of existing units, preserving and maintaining uh, existing affordable housing, because we know that that's a problem. Uh, and then, of course, we know that there are many vulnerable people that uh, require uh, supports and services to, first of all, become housed, and then to be able to maintain that housing. So it's a four-pronged approach, a four-pillar approach, if you will. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting, but we have to stay focused, and, and we have to be really, um, you know, I think, uh, singularly um, dedicated to addressing this situation, because I think you and I have had this conversation over the years. You really can't achieve anything in life if you don't have stable, affordable housing that meets your needs. It's like it's the center of your life. Uh, and so we need to do better. 
Well, uh, many, many, many years ago, <laughs> well, for me anyway, uh, in the late 1990s, when you and I got elected to city council the first time, I know we both served on that committee with a, uh, an incredible uh, city guy named Mark Mascarenas and, and others who were deeply involved in housing. Uh, and it, it's got to be somewhat frustrating, I would think, for you right now that here we are in 2023, and you are facing the same challenges, the same problems, but it's worse now than it was even then. Yeah, you know, and uh, and we did both of us have talked about this over the years on your show, Bill. I mean, the one of the things that is uh, is important to identify, and I think we have done so. Uh, other orders of government have to be partners in this. Absolutely, the kind of not for profit uh, and uh, and other you know developers, even private developers, have been. Some have been helping to uh, to meet the need, working and partnering, uh, but but really the other orders of government need to be there. Yesterday, another conversation we had, uh, you know, was was about uh, uh, the the rapidly rising rents and the uh, uh, and the fact that we don't have uh, vacancy decontrol, or in other words, some kind of rent control uh, <laughs> for eighteen. I said for eighteen years, I've been trying to get the provincial government over a number of different premiers, a number of different political parties in office uh, to be able to uh, to start addressing that. These kinds of big policy issues that are happening at other orders of government trickle down and impact uh, the local level. And yet our municipality, just like every other municipality, doesn't have the financial capacity uh, to uh, to address these, big, address these big picture issues. And so we need to make sure those partnerships work better. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the implementation. Now, you mentioned as well, though, and you touched on this in the uh, the press release, uh, that uh, you're also striking a, a secretariat. This is a group that's going to get together. Uh, the skeptic would suggest that, look, you're just adding another layer of, 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 of administration of people here, and that's going to cost money. What are they going to be able to do that you and the city council haven't been able to do so far? Uh, well, for, uh, first of all, they're not going to cost any more money. Uh, thankfully, the Hamilton Community Foundation has... Uh, has generously provided the support for a, a community uh, liaison person for that to secretariat, and we're moving other staff who, you know, we're changing the way FTEs are working in other areas to 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 staff up that that area. Why? Because a lot of people are doing this kind of thing uh, and trying to uh, to address housing off the side of their desk. And it just doesn't work. So it's pulling those people into this secretariat, as I be, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, to bring that focus, uh, to bring that determination, and to make sure that they're taking a a whole of the city approach, a whole of Hamilton approach. And so they're the ones that are then are going to be able to tap into the planning department, uh, that are going to be tapping into emergency and community services staff uh, from other departments, uh, making sure that uh, all of the pillars that we talk about and the priorities that we bring forward. So this is what the council does uh, in their in their governance role, uh, identifies and works with staff to, to put forward what the priorities for each budget year are going to be. Uh, but there needs to be somebody riding herd on that. Do you know what I mean? There needs to be somebody riding herd on that. And that's what the secretary is going to do. Okay, let's talk about the practicality of this then. And, and you know, you made a, big, a point, a special point of talking about this is going to be a citywide initiative. Uh, do you do you have a strategy about where to begin, where to start? I mean, I, I know you've talked about infill developments and things of this nature. I, I could make an argument that I'm not so sure the provincial government is, is wholly supportive of that sort of thing. They seem to want to build things out in greenfields. Uh, so I, you may be working across purposes with the government. Now, you spent years at Queen's Park, and so did Councillor Clark. Uh, and, and, and Councillor McMeekin. 
and Councillor McMeekin, and and you guys have been there when these requests have come in, uh, and and you know it's 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 one thing to say this is what we're going to do. It's one thing to be bold about you know here's our game plan, uh, but without the money, uh, not a whole lot's going to happen here. Well, well, sure. I mean, there's just, there's just no doubt, and we've talked about uh, the GR piece, and and we've talked about the engagement of the other uh, orders of government, uh, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, th- there are some of those pieces sit with with them, or or let's just say the um, the timeframes on which we can achieve uh, some of these pieces uh, may sit with them. Having said that, uh, we just put this year our current budget. We added um, a significant amount of focus to um, investments in housing type of uh, uh, both programming and uh, and build. So we we increase the housing kind of portfolio by thirty percent just on the municipal tax base this year. Why? Because it's a crisis and everybody knows it and we have to do it. Uh, so what, what we need to do, though, is, is make sure that we're taking that funding and making sure we're leveraging it. So other orders of government, yes. Community partners, for sure. Uh, other other uh, agencies and organizations that are also in this space that want to help with this particular problem. I mentioned Community Foundation. Absolutely. And so the idea is they, let's make sure the coordination is there so that we can leverage and that we can maximize every single opportunity. Uh, you know, we were we have been banging on the doors of the provincial government, uh, particularly post-COVID, because things have gotten much worse, worse post-COVID uh, when it comes to uh, vulnerability of, uh, of, of folks in Hamilton, when it comes to the opioid crisis. And I know you know about Councillor Clark's uh, emergency uh, resolution that passed through council uh, on the opioid crisis, mental health and housing. Uh, last, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago now, the provincial government brought forward a budget and they actually increased the amount of money uh, by about 18% for homelessness uh, programming. That wouldn't have happened had we hadn't made those kinds of uh, efforts, both at our city and across the municipalities, particularly Ontario big city mayors. Uh, but uh, but, but we, we pushed and we got... Now, it scratches the surface of what we need, absolutely. But, it went, but we did get some movement. We can't give up. We have to keep pushing. So these are some of the things that uh, we're going to continue to do. And acknowledge I, know, I know your time is tight, to to- but the other element to this too, and you well know this, of course, from other initiatives that the city has tried in the past, uh, the private sector has got to be a partner in this. I mean, you can't rely on government for every nickel and dime. And let's face it, the city, unless you're going to pick up a hammer and saw and start building, and I don't, wouldn't ask you to do that. The private sector have to be the ones that build these. How do you bring them to the table? I mean, you, you can count on them, you know, with their generosity and their community spirit, et cetera. But uh, you know, these are for-profit businesses, and there's, there's got to be something in it for them, too. How, how do you get them there and get them to be active participants in this? Oh, there's all kinds of different uh, ways that we can uh, uh, make sure that those relationships flourish. We have a couple of a couple of examples right now. Uh, there there are uh, units being built on Queenston Road down in the East End, uh, where the private sector is involved with Community Housing Hamilton, with federal uh, federal dollars uh, in terms of um, uh, housing dollars, and and so that partnership was put together. Uh, there are private sector uh, players in that uh, in that build, and it's exciting. There's a number of units being built there. Uh, you think about, and I, I I you know I dread I rue the idea of actually. Saying it, but I'm going to say it. Uh, the the kind of uh, reimagining of of the townhouse units down in the north end. Uh, yes, they should not be vacant and uh, and sitting there right now empty when there's such a housing crisis. But that is a collaboration again with City Housing Hamilton with private sector players 
that uh, that will that will yield uh, much higher density uh, and uh, and and moderately priced housing that for the um, uh, you know private market housing as well as uh, affordable housing units. And so this is what I t- when I t- talk about partnerships. Yes, the private sector has to be at the table, both in terms of you know being the ones that build the housing, for example for the social housing provider, but also there are opportunities for partnerships there, and and those things are already happening. And, and to, just to that point, I mean, I know there are a number of developers and builders in this community that do have that sense of community that want to help out here too, but I guess maybe maybe this is going to be the catalyst. Maybe what they're looking for is the plan, and it sounds as if the council's at least unanimous behind that. Uh, Andrea, as always, appreciate having you on the show. Uh, lots more discussion to come on this, of course, in the months and years ahead, I suppose, as we go through this, but uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Absolutely my pleasure, Bill. You take care. You too. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath with this plan. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I continue to say and will always say that Canada is a reliable partner to NATO, a reliable partner around the world, and uh, with our military investments, with the support we give to Canadians, we will uh, continue to be doing that. That's the, the Prime Minister responding to questions about a, a story that was in the Washington Post yesterday, which, by the way, uh, was based on some of those leaked uh, Pentagon uh, uh, documents from a couple of days ago uh, that indicates that the Prime Minister has told NATO officials privately uh, that Canada will never emphasize never meet the military alliance defense spending targets uh, that they have set up and uh, that military deficiencies are going to continue for the last or the next little while. I mean, the numbers here are, are what they are. I mean, we've, we've already talked about that. Every time NATO gets together, there's always going to be a, a concern and a conversation about Canada's uh, commitment to that. Uh, but it's the results of, of that commitment. And I think it's the feedback from, from our, some of our partners uh, that is uh, worthy of talking about here. To do that, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Thomas Hughes. Thomas is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Thomas, thanks for uh, jumping in today. Really appreciate the time. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. It's a really interesting subject to talk about. Well, it really is. And I know that the look at numbers, et cetera, and, and uh, you know, they're saying, well, that 2% of GDP is really just a suggestion. It's not really a goal that everybody needs to attain to. And that, that's going to change depending on who you talk to. But what disturbs me about this from the Washington Post story anyway, Thomas, uh, is the reaction. But the, the assessment, by the way, of Canada's uh, uh, contributions, shall we say, uh, is uh, it's, it's this is stamped by the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, this is a legitimate document. Uh, it states that Germany is concerned about whether the Canadian forces can continue to aid in Ukraine. Turkey is disappointed by Canada's military refusal, they say, to support the transport of humanitarian aid after the February earthquake. Haiti is frustrated. We all know that the president uh, put pressure on the Canadian government to try to take a more active role in Haiti. It, it seems as if we're dropping the ball here. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting document. Uh, I think there's a lot of lot of points to come out of it, and I completely agree with you uh, that the for me the the primary concern here is is the attitude of allies. Uh, I think as Professor Thomas, you know, at the University of Ottawa was saying this morning, uh, one of Canada's key components of its defence policy, key components of the way in which it engages in the world, is to be seen as a good ally. So if that if that disappears, then then that really does become more of a challenge for Canada. But I do also think we need to be um, a little bit careful of not uh, kind of overreacting to to some of this. 
I think um, I don't want to sort of sling mud, and I don't think it's it's necessarily fair to to um, highlight shortfalls in other places. But but I think we if we pass out the the, the Turkey, uh, the Germany, and the, the Haiti uh, comments, I, I think we see some slightly different issues here. To start with, Turkey's comments about being a, a, a good ally, we, we, we want um, Canada to be, to be a, a good ally here. Well, what's Turkey done um, for NATO in, in recent years? What's it doing around Sweden and Finland? How do we understand Turkey's place within the NATO alliance? That is also a very big and different conversation. That's not to say that, that Canada shouldn't have been um, sending uh, humanitarian aid to Turkey. Uh, but what was the, the ability for Canada to, to do that? And can Turkey point fingers at, at Canada as a bad ally uh, in, that, in that sense? And I think it's a bit more of a challenge to do that. Germany, again, we've talked about their um, relationship with NATO and with regard to sending equipment to Ukraine and their support for those sorts of missions. And the Haiti comment, I, I think, is a really interesting one as well, because I think, again, we can all say... Uh, it would be fantastic if Canada could provide assistance to Haiti to help improve the situation in Haiti. But is sending the Canadian Armed Forces actually the right thing to do? Um, Professor Steve Seidemann, uh, who I believe was on your, your show earlier yes. this week or last week, was was uh, talking about this uh, as well this morning. And I think it's a really interesting and, and useful point here. Uh, Haiti might be requesting that, that military assistance, but but I think Canada's response there needs to be more nuanced than simply sending soldiers to Haiti, um, because it's a very difficult scenario, uh, and one in which simply inserting troops who are not prepared for that mission is not necessarily going to be particularly helpful. So, like I say, I think we need to take the um, critiques of these countries, of Canada's, uh, Canada, sorry, Canada's um, influence in Canada's uh, role in the missions that they're talking about and actually pass it through uh, an understanding of, of what Canada can accomplish in those roles and what the best way of achieving those conclusions are. There's a couple of other things here. By the way, the response from uh, from the Joint Chiefs, the official response anyway from the Pentagon, was that Canada is a good partner. They And the comment's very similar to what President Biden said uh, when he was up here in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago too. So they, they, they're not trying to kick mud on us while this is out here. And the, and the report is, is as you say, it, it's there. And those the, those quotes yeah. from those nations are there as well. But there's an underlying issue here, Thomas, that I wonder uh, why we're not talking about. Uh, our Canadian military is understaffed. I mean, let's cut right to the quick here. Yeah. Not many people want to be in the Canadian military these days. Uh, they're losing people who want to leave. Uh, others are retiring, of course. Uh, and and that's that's got to be a problem. I mean, if you only, you know, have a percentage of people that uh, as to what you want to have there you you can't be everywhere all at once can you no, without a shadow of a doubt. And I think that, that phrase that you just used, we can't be everywhere all at once, is absolutely critical here. The, the comments that came through from, from these documents about and the critique of uh, Canada couldn't conduct further operations uh, alongside its contribution in, in Latvia, it's like, well, yeah, sure, we know that. that. That's absolutely the case. And we know that is a real challenge for the Canadian Armed Forces. And it, it's easy to spend money badly. I mean, that, that's not a problem. Um, it is more of a challenge to spend that money well. And and exactly as you suggested, one of the key ways of of spending that money well for the Canadian Armed Forces in the in the near future is ensuring that recruitment and retention is effective, uh, and not to be clear, not simply retaining people by paying them more necessarily, um, but actually by making those those working 
environments uh, and circumstances more effective. So there's that dual track really for, for Canada. Um, one is is building the military that it that it wants. And secondly, is absolutely critically understanding the military that it needs. What are the foreign policy objectives uh, of, of Canada? What are uh, Canada's goals in terms of using its military to achieve those foreign policy objectives? And what, are the, what, is, what does the military look like uh, that, that accomplishes those? And that, I think, is a, a hugely interesting and very difficult question. It's a little bit disappointing that, that I think Canada is, is pushing back in terms of time its, its defence and security review. Obviously, that needs to be right. Uh, we need to make sure that that is uh, appropriate and accurate, but we really need to be putting effort into that before we can uh, spend money most effectively. Exactly. Thomas, we've got to leave it there. We're just about out of time. But uh, as always, thanks for uh, joining us today and giving your perspective. Really appreciate it. No, no problem at all. Delighted to speak to you. Thank you. Take care. Thomas Hughes uh, from the Canadian Defence and Security Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So that's roughly 2,000 more educators this coming school year, more teachers and better schools, and a curriculum that gets back to the basics by ensuring it is modernized by ensuring that the government is constantly updating the curriculum to make sure it reflects the best evidence, the best research, and where the labor market needs are. That's uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce, an announcement he made earlier this week. And, uh, you know, every time the government uh, says they're going to spend more money or revamp the education system or the curriculum, uh, well, first of all, it's always a photo op. They always seem to do that in a classroom, right? And the education minister is usually, you know, has to read a book to a couple of little kids there just to show that they, they really care about education. It's, it's, the, it's the pattern. And that's, it's, you know, this is the way they roll these things out. And, you know, they talk about the money that they're going to spend and how they're investing in education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but as always, uh, with government announcements, there are two sides to the story. Uh, we want to talk about those changes they want to make to the curriculum, but we also want to talk about uh, funding for education uh, because we seem to be getting one story from the government and another from uh, people that are actually involved in delivering education to our kids. Uh, to talk about this, please do welcome back to the program, Karen Littlewood. Karen is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Karen, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, it's wonderful wonderful to be back on. Thank you. Well, let's talk about money, first of all, okay? And then we can talk about this math program that they're investing in, uh, so they tell us anyway. Uh, in the budget a little while ago, the uh, the finance minister talked about how they're investing in education. Mr. Lecce, Minister Lecce, uh, mentioned that again earlier this week when he talked about this. Uh, you and your members are on the front lines. You guys do the crunching of the numbers here about what's going on. Uh, is this government investing in education uh, in such a big way as, as they seem to be talking about well, when you factor in inflation to have $600 less in per pupil funding, I would say that is not an investment. So talk to us about that number, because, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's easy to make numbers work for you. And, and politicians are great at that. But uh, when you break it down to how much is actually going into the education system and how much is going in per student, uh, it tells a much different story. Uh, that drop of $600 per student is, uh, I, I, I'm assuming, very significant over the course of a year. 
It's absolutely significant. And when you uh, compare it back to 2018 as well, it's $1,200 less per pupil. But uh, this year alone is half of that $600 less per pupil. And so that is, (laughs) I I don't know how school boards are going to cope, how they're going to um, have a balanced budget in order to start the school year. They are going to be very challenged. But bigger than that, it's a clear indicator of the government and um, their lack of investment in the students of the province. That's that's what we really have to be focusing on. We could talk about numbers all day, but they have not committed to working on investing in the students of the province. Okay, but, and, and by the way, I know some people are going to say, well, those are the teachers, of course. They don't like their government. <laughs> uh, and that may or may not be true, but that's, not, that's inconsequential here. Uh, these are numbers from the the Financial Accountability Office, of course, and which is an independent body. It doesn't work for the government. They just, uh, uh, they analyze what the government's doing. And, and this government, uh, as, as that last report indicated, uh, Karen, are doing something with education it's very similar to what they did uh, with healthcare uh, about a year and a half, two years ago during the COVID, uh, the lockdowns and everything else. They are announcing spending, but they never spend the money. And, and so you can say, yeah. I'm going to spend a billion dollars on education uh, next week. But if you don't spend it, I mean, you know, you, you get the headline when you make the announcement about that. Wow, this is a government that really cares about education. But they don't, they don't, the money never filters through. Uh, and, and that's problematic because that rarely makes the, the news. People don't t- do that until you get an auditor's report or something like that. But it's, it's not helping the education system. No, it's not. So um, I'll point out, too, that there was $2 billion that came from the federal government for COVID supports during the pandemic, and they didn't spend that either. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a pattern in the beginning, and this is the pattern of this particular government. They come out with an announcement of an announcement of an announcement. We then get to work because we've not been consulted. We haven't had a heads up. We get to work looking at the numbers and find that it's really not an announcement and, in fact, can be a cut at times. But then they also really, they're the masters of distraction is what I'm seeing right now. Sunday afternoon or morning, they had a press conference. Uh, Monday, the minister spoke about it at Queen's Park. Yet quietly in the background, the grants for students needs were announced. No fanfare, no announcement. And that's because they didn't want people to notice that this is less money per pupil. This type of pattern does long-term damage to the education system of the province. Let's let's pretend it's a car. If you don't get your oil changed, you know what happens. You know, it might be okay for the first couple of years, but pretty soon you have a problem with your engine. And now it's a massive costly repair. Um, that's the, the pattern that this government is fo- following by not investing year over year and by continuing to underfund. That Financial Accountability Office predicts with great uh, evidence to back them up that by 2027-2028, there will be $6 billion less in education. I, I don't understand how that can be okay for a province like Ontario. And and this is you know going to filter down, of course. You know, then the boards are going to have to do their their budgets, mm-hmm. and they're going to have less money to spend, and going to have to make some tough decisions. Uh, and 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 this is where the conflict always seems to come in here. That uh, uh, you know, we, every every education minister that I've been talking to ever since I started doing this job, which is quite a few years ago right now, the first thing they always tell us, Karen, is all we're caring about here is what's best for the students. Uh, mm-hmm. But it seems more and more, especially in the last few years, especially here in Ontario, uh, that it's the bottom line that they're concerned about here. 
Well, Bill 89 that was introduced on Monday officially and announced on Sunday morning um, is supposed to be an education bill. It's really a real estate bill. It's talking about the fact that uh, excess schools need to be sold off because, you know, we can, we're the, the biggest real estate holding and we need to make sure that we're taking advantage of that. Okay, but how is this good for students? They did mention a thousand educators. I don't even know if that is is teachers. Educators are needed in the system too. But when you consider a thousand educators across a province like Ontario with 4,800 schools, how far is that actually going to go? 300 of them are supposed to be part of a math action team. I don't even know what that is. Like I'm picturing people with capes on coming into the boards and trying to fix things in one day. That It doesn't work like that. And that's not good for students. So, you know, I would ask the minister, what in that bill will be directly impacting students? They're, the bill is really more about, about money and finances, but not the supports that are needed for the students. Well, so let's talk about the math situation because it's always a controversial issue uh, when they get, you know, the results. And we did this for years and years and years. Of course, you know, they do the testing at, at certain grades mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and some schools did very well. Others did very poorly. And yep. we never really heard follow up from the government about what they were going to do for the ones that were getting the poor grades. How did they help them? These are people that need a leg up. And, and it just seemed that any announcement uh, was, was just a kind of a one size fits all, which didn't really address the real concerns within the system. Yeah, so the government is also, the minister talked about, you know, the 20% of schools that are consistently underperforming based on the EQAO score results. Well, those tests weren't taken during the pandemic. They were taken again last year for the first time. I don't really know that those numbers are valid when we're in the midst of a pandemic recovery. Uh, I don't dispute that there are issues in various areas of the province, but if we're only going to target that lower 20%, there's probably students in other schools who have needs as well. But we're not delivering education equitably across the province. There are different supports and services in different areas. And that depends entirely on boards trying to figure out the best way to meet the needs of their students. I was at a meeting in Guelph last night and their board took the tutoring money that was given to boards and they hired contract teachers to have direct support in the classroom. They've had success with that. What a great model. But that money is gone now. And that board has said, we're going to try and find the money somewhere else to continue with this because they believe in the needs of the students. Where is the government saying that? Have they said they believe in the needs of the students and that they're offering those supports? No, they're talking about selling off schools and we don't even know where the money's going to go for that. Well, we can imagine. Uh, And again, this has got to be news to the boards too, though, Karen. I mean, because the process used to be, it was the board that would make that decision whether or not a property was was Mm -hmm. going to be surplus. Uh, And uh, now it seems as if the government simply said, no, it's it's our call. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll decide what we're going to close. We'll decide when it's going to happen. And we'll decide where the money goes uh, for the sale, which inevitably is going to, I would imagine, go to some private development firm uh, for whatever they feel like doing there. I mean, I, I know we need housing. And, but yep. it just seems as if what the, the government's doing right now is everything is going to be geared towards getting buildings for houses. And we saw this happen. We covered this story. I'm sure you've heard it two weeks ago, uh, where privately run long-term care facilities are shutting down and selling to developers. Uh, that's good for people looking for a place to live. But if you're you know, a frail and elderly person looking for some place to live out your days, uh, it's not such a good story. And the same thing may be happening here with education. 
Well, it is. In fact, when you read Bill 98, they talk about the fact that some of these surplus schools could be sold off for long-term care. I'd like to remind the minister that there are very few um, elementary schools in the province that have air conditioning. So are we going to continue to have our our beloved elderly as well in those non-air conditioned buildings that are going to be retrofitted? It's it's really, I, I don't understand the methodology, but the biggest issue is when you don't consult with the people who are frontline, who are the stakeholders, who are working in the system, who know what's happening and what's needed. No, we're not going to ask for the moon and the star in the skies. We're going to ask for what's needed to be able to support students. And we're not being consulted on that. And as a result, people are leaving education. Um, the students need to have that support, but I'm not sure how boards are going to make it happen. Well, uh, I could say it's early days since this announcement was made, but I'm glad you guys had some time to do some analysis on this and, and uh, to address some of the real problems. Uh, but as these policies start to unfold in the next uh, couple of weeks and months, I guess, uh, we're going to have to have further discussions uh, about mm -hmm. the impact it's going to have. Karen, I know how busy you are. Thanks for taking some time for us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so much. Thanks so much for having me on, Bill. We'll talk to you soon. You betcha. Karen Littlewood, who is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of concern about what's going on south of the border and uh, notwithstanding some of the shootings. By the way, I want to talk about those in a couple of seconds uh, with our next guest. Uh, and uh, the, the abortion issue, all of which are going to be factors in the upcoming presidential election, which seems to be coming up so very quickly. Uh, but also there's the Donald Trump factor, which is still there. And, uh, and of course, the charges uh, that were laid, of course, in uh, New York not too long ago. And, of course, that arraignment. And uh, that was uh, an in interesting uh, incident in and of itself. Uh, but let's get the latest on what's going on with the, the, the Trumpster and, and uh, how he's being impacted by this. Because uh, it seems as if the surveys they have done so far indicate that notwithstanding the indictment against Trump, uh, there's not a whole lot going wrong with his personality these days. A new poll suggests that Trump has emerged largely unscathed politically from his New York indictment, where he's been charged in connection with hush money payments made to women who alleged sexual encounters. Only four in ten adults who answered a poll by the Associated Press and the Nork Center for Public Affairs Research believe Trump acted illegally. But five in ten believe Trump broke the law in Georgia, where he's under investigation for interfering in the 2020 election vote count. And the poll says about five in 10 feel the same about Trump's role in the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, and Trump's handling of classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Donna Border, Washington. So that's one factor what's going on, and uh, it, it's. I want to talk to somebody who's who's right in the middle of all of this, of course, and has been for many, many years. Uh, Brian J. Karam is a columnist for Salon.com. He's also the host of a great podcast called Just Ask the Question, and uh, author of the new book uh, called Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It, uh, which is, on, I think, about his 15th printing right now. It's a fabulous book uh, and very timely, considering what's going on south of the border. Uh, Brian J. Karam joins us uh, from the White House, I guess. Yeah, you're down there for... Uh, 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 I guess the usual briefing from St. Pierre and, and the rest of the crowd. I haven't talked to you for a while. How are you doing, Brian? Yeah, doing pretty good. How are you doing? Excellent. Top of the world. Watching with great interest uh, about what's happening south of the border. And I know that you and I have talked extensively about gun control uh, in the past. Uh, President Biden uh, has made that one of the, the pillars, I guess, of, of, of what he wants to see get done here. Uh, it's getting out of control, as you wrote about in the piece in Salon.com. I mean, cheerleaders are getting shot and killed for going into the wrong car or going up the wrong driveway. And uh, the shootings here are starting to add up, even including in your hometown. 
Yeah, that's uh, in Louisville. That was uh, I, I knew one of the people that got shot there. But I also knew people that were killed in Annapolis at the newspaper shooting three years ago. Unfortunately, uh, there are very few people left in the United States who aren't aware of someone first or second hand who was wasn't killed or injured in a, in a shooting. Uh, yeah, it's out of control. And uh, it's it, what what's most displeasing, what's most discouraging is that we've been having this argument for 54 years, it seems like, and we haven't done anything to to find a solution. Everyone just says arm everyone. And I just go, well, I've been to places where everyone is armed and that's called a war zone. And I'd prefer not to turn the U.S. into a war zone. But it's it's almost as if especially the politicians have just become numb to this i mean there used to be uh, a debate and and somebody would bravely try to put a piece forth a piece of legislation about you know banning assault weapons or something of this nature handguns you know, uh, checks of, of you know the, the screening process etc that that doesn't even seem to be happening anymore it just seems as if well, what's what's the use in trying because we know it's not going to go anywhere yeah, there's that's there, you, you make a point, and we even had an assault weapons ban uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away called the United States. But there was, in order to get it passed, there was a sunset provision added to it, so that law uh, evaporated and went away after ten years. And during that time, uh, mass shootings dropped, and since then they've exponentially increased. And it's people like Donald Trump who are convincing people that there's no hope in the world. That's adding to this problem. Uh, we have problems with uh, mental health. We have problems with education. But most importantly, we, we have uh, people that need education and mental health help with weapons of mass destruction walking around in our cities, gunning people down at will. And that's got to stop. It's a. Uh it's troubling, obviously, to see what's happening here. And uh, as we mentioned, I know the President Biden's tried to, to move the, the yardsticks on this issue, uh, and there doesn't seem to yeah, be a whole lot going what, on. Bill, I, give, I do not think he's done everything that he could. And I am critical of this administration for one reason. When they wanted to get an infrastructure bill passed, they got a bipartisan infrastructure bill passed, and they did it by inviting members of the legislative uh, branch of government and Congress you know, the right and the left to the White House, sat them down and talked to them. That needs to be done in this case. They should, I, if I were the president, I'd invite them all over for dinner, throw them in the diplomatic room and lock the door and tell them they're not coming out until they get a damn deal done. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little extreme. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> or pragmatic, one or the other, or maybe a little bit of yeah. both, uh, which is which is one of the things I think they need more of down there these days. Hey, what about the leak? Uh, the, the Pentagon, this is not the Pentagon Papers, of course, uh, and I know in the piece in Salon.com you, you drew the analogy with Daniel Ellsberg uh, in the Pentagon Papers from years and years ago, which pretty much blew the Johnson administration out of the water with their Vietnam plan. Uh, but this is something altogether different. I mean, you know, the, the world, as, as you and I have been talking about for the longest time, is a far more dangerous place now than it probably ever has been in the last 50 or 60 years. Um, yes. Government leaks like this can be problematic and, and can get people killed an awful lot of the time. Uh, do people uh, that you talk to, Brian, and, and I'm not just talking about the press crew in Washington there, but the people you talk to as you go around in, in different communities, do they understand that, that how dangerous and how precarious uh, the, the position of the United States and the rest of the world is these days vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia? Of course not, Bill. You have people that are 80% of people in the United States have not only not been overseas or been to another country, but they've only visited maybe three states in their whole lifetime. So there are people in this country who've never been out of their hometown. They have no clue how 
the standing in the rest of the world is. They only know what they read or see or hear, and they only read, see, or hear what they want to hear to, to you know, reinforce their own beliefs. So no, they don't. And the real question in the leaks case is not, will this 21-year-old airman be uh, punished for what he did? He certainly should be. But it's the, the protocols and the people above him that allowed this to happen. Will those change so that the that you can keep secrets a little bit better, especially those that may cause hate, death, and destruction. That's a real question here, and there's no real answer to it so far. Well, and, and as you say, uh, you know, the, the question a lot of folks are asking not is not how, you know, what did he do? It's how the hell did he have access to all that information? I mean, I know he's an analyst, but, I mean, does that mean he's he's got the key to every door in that building? No, that's a good question. What were the protocols that allowed a, a 21-year-old part-time Air, I mean, he was with the Air National Guard out of Massachusetts. What the hell is he doing with those type of secrets? You know, he's 21. I'm 62. I don't have I don't have access to that kind of crap. And I'm far more trustworthy than he is, obviously. <laughs> I mean, he, he's in a chat room playing, you know, video games with his buddies, trying to, you know, brag about how brave he is. I, I just, it, it to me, it's if it weren't so serious, it would be like a Saturday Night Live skit. Uh, speaking of which, uh, they're having a wonderful time, of course, with uh, Donald Trump and with the indictment and the and the the new the, the Manhattan uh, situation where Trump had to fly up there and was indicted. And, and according to to the ex president, of course, uh, uh, the officials were crying uh, when he was being uh, processed, of course, because they they had to do this to poor Donald Trump. Uh, no, no, those yes. were tears of joy. Oh, I. <laughs> <laughs> He hasn't changed. You know, in our report just before he jumped in here, I mean, you know, the people that love him still love him, and nothing seems to have changed. Uh, just as if, you know, Fox News finally paid a huge, huge amount of money to Dominion uh, because they lied and lied and lied. Uh, yet Fox News is still Fox News. As a matter of fact, the day, as you know, the day of this the, the settlement was announced earlier this week, Fox News didn't even mention it on, on air that day. No. It, it's, 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 it's history. No. It never happened. The- they, they, what's funny is, you know, they still claim we own the libs. And I go, yeah, it only took you $787 million to do it. That, that, that They paid for the lie, but you're right. Fox News, there's no indication that Fox News will change, um, at, at least in the short term. Now, in the long term, maybe. But the fact of the matter is, is that our, uh, our media in this country is built upon a capitalistic mountain and it's you know so therefore people get to see read or hear what they want to and so the people providing the information particularly fox and they're the worst center in this regard craft everything that they sell based on what they know their audience wants to see so until that changes until we bust up media monopolies till we reintroduce a fairness doctrine until we allow independent journalism and more diversity you're going to continue to have that problem and it's you know Biden has spoken a lot about trying to bust up monopolies. I wish he would talk more about busting up media monopolies because that's one of the largest problems we have in the United States. Six companies own virtually 90% of what you see, read, or hear. And I guarantee you those six companies are only in it for the money. Well, and uh, you touched on this in your book, of course, in Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism, about those monopolies yeah. basically controlling the message and, and how strident the supporters of those uh, particular cases, whether it's Fox or MSNBC or whatever the case may be, their hosts are their are their gods and they, they can do no wrong. You know, Tucker Carlson admitted, you know, under oath that he lied. He admitted that he can't stand Donald Trump, but all is forgotten now. 
Of course, because they still need to make money. And uh, Tucker Carlson is about as believable as George Santos. And I think all of them are on the same <laughs> medication as Marjorie Taylor Greene. Those are hallucinogens that just can't be purchased on the open market. What's going on with the the, the race itself? I, I know that the abortion bill or the abortion debate rather is, is still a major issue down there. The Supreme Court has stuck their nose in this. Uh, DeSantis's uh, bill down uh, in Florida earlier this week too has caused all sorts of grief. Uh, is this going to be the issue in the presidential election in twenty twenty four? If the Democrats know how to craft a message, which they don't, yes, it would be because they took away a, a right that has existed for 50 years. And a majority of Americans favor abortion rights. So, yes, if the Democrats knew what they were doing. But remember, the Democrats are excellent at snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory every time. Uh, so I don't count on them to do it. The Republicans are great about avoiding responsibility for anything that they do. As I've said before, and you've heard me say it, Bill, we've got two parties in this country. One has no heart and one has no head. And the American public are suffering because of it. Uh, we're just about out of time, but you mentioned something else in the piece, and, and you've talked about this a couple of different times. Uh, it's uh, the, everybody's you know the cliche is that this is a, this is the most important election in U.S. history, but it may, may well be in twenty twenty four. Is, and you, but you're suggesting that Donald Trump probably won't be on the ballot for the Republicans, and Joe Biden may not be on the ballot for the Democrats. What are you What are you hearing? I think that if uh, if Donald Trump isn't on the ticket, then Biden won't be on the ticket. And I would prefer that in both cases, neither one of them were on either ticket. We need newer, younger leadership in this country. But as long as uh, Trump is on the ticket, Biden will be there because he's the only Democrat that's proven they can beat Donald Trump. So that's what we're going to see. But I don't feel that Biden's heart is in a second race. And I think that if Donald Trump gets wrapped up or saddled with more indictments, he may find an out for not being in the race. And that will lead us into, you know, talk to me seven, eight months from now, and we'll have a far better idea of what it's going to look like then. And But you suggested, uh, based on some of the conversations with, uh, with some of your colleagues, uh, that Trump may feign an illness and just say, I can't do this for health reasons. Yeah, he's already said that. He said, I'm running, but, you know, a doctor could come in and tell me I can't do it, and then I'd be done. And so that's, yeah, that's probably where I, I if Donald Trump wants an out, he's given himself one, and he'll take it. Uh, the uh, podcast you want to listen to, uh, to get a real a great idea as to what's going on and why it's going on in U.S. politics. It's called Just Ask the Question, and that's Brian J. Karam. You can check it out where you get your podcasts. Always a pleasure to talk with you, my friend. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah, always, Bill. Always a pleasure. Take care. Uh, Brian, of course, writes for Salon.com as well. And uh, his book, as I say, seriously, is into a, a numerous printings right now, doing very, very well. It's, it's a great read about uh, a kind of a historical perspective of the last 40 or 50 years about American politics and journalism and how they are so intertwined and sometimes their own worst enemies. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.